take first watch. new episode of the first watch podcast i'm zach and i'm here with cole how are you we're back 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 again i'm good how about you i'm doing great it's been a little bit since we've talked our last conversation has not yet been released to everybody that is about our favorite films of 2013 which are celebrating their 10-year anniversaries so once that's edited up that'll come out after this episode where we are convening to talk about the latest and greatest blockbuster of the year John Wick Chapter 4. That's to the best. We are excited to talk about that franchise, Keanu Reeves, Chad Stahelski. What else have you been seeing? I've seen a couple of things of great varying quality. Oh no. Let's say that. <laughs> Let's start off with the good stuff. The first thing I want to talk about is what I would call the best film of the year so far. Pacifiction. It's a new film by Albert Serra. set on the French Polynesian islands of Tahiti, and it tells the story of High Commissioner de Roller, played by Benoit Magamel of The Piano Teacher. Mm. He's this smooth, calculating government official, and his job is to, you know, grease palms and keep the peace on the island between the natives and the French establishment. However, all of that begins to rumble and shake a little bit when rumors of a submarine appear alongside the whispers that the French government might restart nuclear testing on the island, which understandably has the natives very, very upset. Imagine a mimosa-soaked descent into hell. This was my first film by Albert Serra. I've heard from others that it's really the most accessible thing that he's made so far, (laughs) which I think speaks to a certain level of mastery that he's able to the movie's quite long. It runs close to three hours, and it's very slow-moving and hypnotic and sensual. But it's just totally engrossing and captivating for the entire time. This stuff is really all about the atmosphere and the environment and just lingering at it. The other big film of his that I've seen is The Death of King Louis XVI, which is literally just watching this old man in bed for two hours as he slowly dies. And you watch all of the other members of the court fly over him like gnats on a corpse. I found the most interesting aspect of pacifiction to be, it's kind of a look into the psychology of the French state in the modern world. Because Mm -hmm. the whole reason that they want to do nuclear testing is to be seen as serious on the world stage. And I think that that's just such a cutting edge idea. It's really getting right into the nasty heart of colonialism and geopolitics and treating the world like an object, treating other people in their homes and their culture yeah. like just something to be used. Mm-hmm. Trying to treat like the remains of your empire as a playground. And at the same time, how banal it is and how those types of things are really held in place by the complacency of people in power and just plain old regular people. Yeah, this is a very hypnotic masterpiece, I would say. I am in agreement with you that it is my favorite film of the year as well. At least so far. It's early. It's early, but 2023 has had some good offerings. Yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised so far. Have you been able to catch up with anything else? Yeah, this is a film that I am probably going to mess up every single name and like detail <laughs> because I am an old grandmother who looks at all this stuff and says, that's nice, dear. That's that's nice. So I caught up with Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. Uh, yeah. This is directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who also directed Game Night, one of the best studio comedies of recent memory. This film is about a group of thieves, including Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, Justice Smith, and Sophia Lillis, who go on this adventure to stop the evil lord played by Hugh Grant from successfully manipulating Chris Pine's daughter into believing that he doesn't care about her, and also to stop an evil wizard with an army of the dead or something like that. <laughs> it, it's it's all Greek to me. I don't know anything about any of this like yeah i might be able to help a little bit yeah yeah i'm gonna need the assist (laughs) i actually saw this one early because amazon prime did a preview day Mm -hmm. at amc so i was actually able to catch this one 
in theaters a little bit before it dropped this weekend. This is based on Dungeons and Dragons, the tabletop role-playing game by Wizards of the Coast. Uh, you may have heard of it. It's pretty much the first and most popular name in particularly that tabletop version of role-playing games, but mm-hmm. its influence on video games and anything contemporary fantasy is huge. You know, you watch Stranger Things or playing D&D. And this film is not the first time that they've attempted to adapt that property into film, <laughs> the most notable of which comes from 2000, starring Jeremy Irons and Marlon Wayans and some white guy playing the main character that nobody remembers as all of the worst movies of all time tend to have. <laughs> I was intrigued going into this to see how faithful it was going to be to the games, how many things that it would retain. And I was also a little bit concerned about that sense of humor that's mm-hmm. in the trailer because it's very like, did that just happen? <laughs> and I think in a way, the faithfulness to the game combined with that sense of humor makes it so that you can kind of access all that material without having to really wrap your head around all of it, which I thought was very similar to the original Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Yes, the whole humor and character development of this movie very much felt like what Marvel was doing when they were at their peak. Just bringing everybody together, they have their own personalities. You can really see what each member of the team brings to the table. And I think it just makes it accessible and digestible for people who are like, whoa, talking tree, whoa, girl platoons <laughs> do a deer type of thing. Yeah. A lot of good humor in this. I really enjoy, there's like a sequence where they're all digging open these graves to talk to corpses to try to find a helmet. <laughs> Each one of them is giving them like a little piece of the backstory and they have to dig up the next guy to hear the next piece, dig up the next guy to hear the next piece. Sometimes they dig up a guy that doesn't know anything at all. I haven't actually seen Game Night, but I've seen a lot of clips of it because it's popular on Twitter. And it has that similar, like, where the camera placements kind of play into the jokes and yeah. into the humor. And I thought that that was very welcome in this. Yeah. There's moments where it feels like you're almost looking down at a tabletop game. I was thinking, like, the escape sequence, mm-hmm. where you kind of get, like, a long tracking shot where the there's, like, a druid character who's, like, turning into different animals and running and escaping through the castle. That was very, very clever. And I like that scene. Out of the cast, Hugh Grant. MVP. <laughs> he could have had more Hugh Grant. He's kind of doing that Kate Blanchett Thor 3 where he's like the villain, so he's kind of off to the side while the adventure's happening. Yeah. There's a cameo in this that I don't want to spoil. But it, <laughs> every time I think about it, it's kind of my favorite part of the movie. It's uh, Michelle Rodriguez's former love interest is played by an actor who you may recognize. Yeah, and it's hilarious. It helps establish those Guardians of the Galaxy connections, hint, hint. I've been grounded at home without my car, so I've been looking mostly at the local AMC, which is in walking distance. I was sort of admiring how everything that's out right now has a number in the title. It's sort of like Creed 3, John Wick 4, Scream 6, Shazam 2. You know, it's like, yeah, we're happy that the movies are back and that superhero movies are getting their ass kicked, but also it's like, Meet the new boss, kind of same as the old boss. Yeah, a little. Did you see uh, either of those, Scream or Shazam? I've skipped both thus far. Yeah, I saw both. Uh, Let's talk about the good one first, or at least a decent one first. Good old Scream 6. So this takes place about a year after the events of Scream 5, uh, with the Woodsboro killings, and the main four who survived that movie, uh, Melissa Barrera, Jenna Ortega, Hold on, let me pull up the names. This is a problem, to be honest, that you can't just rifle off the names of the Scream cast. Yeah, I mean... You gotta get that part of it right. Yeah, it's really a mess. Uh, But Melissa Barrera, Jenna Ortega, Jasmine Savoy-Brown, and Mason Gooding, they have all decided to leave Woodsboro, and they are now living in the Big Apple. And the particular conflict here is that Melissa Barrera's character has become sort of a helicopter sibling over her sister jenna ortega she's concerned that her younger sister isn't processing the trauma of what happened in the last film properly she keeps on giving her weapons like pepper spray and tasers to take everywhere with her at all times but on halloween in a very lengthy opening sequence starring tony revelori and samara weaving which is kind of like a fun callback to ready or not uh, the first film that really put Mm. the directors of this one on the map Turns out that Ghostface is back again asking everybody, what's your favorite scary movie? 
and uh, killing people left and right. And this time it's up to those four, along with Courtney Cox, to figure out what's going on. I didn't realize Courtney Cox was still in this. Well, spoiler. She's the only one left. Right. Which they do handle Campbell's presence in a very respectable way. Gail tells the two girls she's hiding, not getting involved this time. Uh, That's what she should have been doing, like, originally, but yeah. I mean, she should have been doing that after the first one, frankly, but... (laughs) Yeah, I knew Campbell wasn't in it. I don't think I realized that Cox was. Yeah, she is the legacy character this time that gets singled out as a possibility of being offed. The weird thing about this is that the Scream movies are starting to become a little less meta. There's like maybe one scene where, you know, they lay down all the ground rules and even Letterboxd gets a shout out, which I was like, what are we doing here? (laughs) But they're starting to become more serious slashers and less about the meta elements. And there's some great kills, you know, and some great chases in here. But at the same time, just like, Part of me thinks that it's better to do more straightforward slasher than to be meta. Yeah. Because I can't think of, I mean, I've seen the first five, I've not seen six. And apart from the first one, which I would argue the first one is primarily good because it is such a great slasher movie, first and foremost, and Mm -hmm. like a great mystery and great characters. Yeah. So, like, the meta stuff has always been secondary. Apart from New Nightmare, which is a totally different series. That's the one where the meta elements are really important and scary and impact everything. Whereas in the Scream movies, it's just kind of flavor text for the yeah. first movie. Yeah, It's kind of just randy in <laughs> the first movie. I mean, it's all over the place in some ways. But anyway, yeah. I've never really found that to be a captivating element. So aren't they supposed to be making like Stab? Like, didn't they say that they wanted to make a Stab movie? They were interested in exploring that for some reason. Which uh, seems like a bad idea to me personally, but... And then Shazam, anything, it looks... Let me let me just gun to your head. You gotta watch Black Adam or Shazam 2. Which one do you watch? The Bullet. <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately, I decided to see uh, Shazam, Fury of the Gods. In my defense, it was at the Alamo. I was downtown. There was a showtime in 10 minutes. So I was like, eh, what the fuck? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> but this one takes place four-ish years after the events of the first film. So it turns out in the last film, when Shazam broke the magic staff or whatever that Mark Strong's character wanted, he broke the seal on the realm of the gods that kept them imprisoned there. So now Calypso, Hespera, and Anthea are coming after Shazam and his siblings to take their father's powers back. Uh, they are played respectively by Lucy Liu, Helen Mirren, and Rachel Zegler. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's not very good at all. Yeah. Zach Levi's been having like a conniption fit online for a while, and that <laughs> almost seems more interesting to me than the film. Particularly because I think The Rock kind of got proven right, even though the whole like Black Adam snafu is kind of embarrassing and a little bit of an ego trip. And I think arguably it hurts Black Adam and Shazam because neither character makes a ton of sense without the other. Mm -hmm. Like, they belong together for sure. So there's like a lot of arrogance. But then you look at how this movie's performing and you look at Levi kind of acting like a 12-year-old in the part. Yeah, which the actor who plays the child version of this character has been actively voicing his displeasure with that disconnect. On Twitter. He's supposed to be like 17 or 18 yeah. in the film, right? Like his character is. is coming of age. Yeah, and that's part of the supposed plotline for him is that he's worried about aging out of the family and having to leave, which is also like a completely stupid plotline considering the events of the last movie, but like whatever. <laughs> um, Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu are having some fun as, you know, like the daughters of Atlas or whatever that means. You know, they get to vamp it up a little bit. It does seem a little less self-serious than, like, Eternals. Oh, far less serious. But doesn't really look better than the Eternals. It's worse than Eternals. (laughs) Oh, no. Like, at least Eternals didn't look like complete dog shit. We were in a group chat the other day, and I was like, I think Eternals would be, like, a top two DCE 
MCU movie for me, or top three Ooh, below yeah. Birds of Prey and the first Shazam. Because I like it more than Wonder Woman, which is probably third. <laughs> you know, there's a really hilarious uh, Wonder Woman cameo in this. This got spoiled in the marketing because they were basically pulling all kinds of Hail Marys to save this movie from completely flopping. So she's the deus ex machina at the end of the film. And she arrives at this very, very sad funeral moment. And as soon as she appears on screen, the music, her theme starts and it's like, (laughs) just the disconnect between what was happening in the scene versus her arrival. I started laughing out loud because it was just so ridiculous. But yeah, if you want to watch this movie that has a very obvious Skittles ad in it, wait for it to come out on streaming or, you know, just wait for it to uh, metaphorically fall off the back of the truck. If you know what I mean? <laughs> It'll be on HBO Max before it's too long, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's going up on VOD on April 18th. So they <laughs> clearly, they just sent this thing out to die. And they gave up on it. Honestly, don't blame them. So let's go ahead and switch over and talk about the movie that's been eating it up yeah. at the box office. Is I assume John Wick is number one. It made like 122 domestic and then I think similar numbers internationally so far just doing quite well i think it's been the best performer of the series so far yeah i actually caught up with in terms of what i've been watching i caught up with john wick two and three i watched the first one i think it must have been like on its anniversary or something it was recently enough that i felt like let's just go to two and three how do you like those first three john wick movies i don't think we've ever really talked about them you know i like them a lot i do think they get better they go on. I think two is better than one, and then three is better than two. I love the ramping escalation of the bloody nonsense. Yeah, that first movie is Stahelski and Leitch, who both have their roots in stunt choreography. Mm-hmm. And really, there was no promise that they were even going to get that film made. It was only by the grace of Eva Longoria, like genuinely, truly, as yeah. one of the producers on that film, who basically allowed that to get made. So that first movie is really very tight. It's almost an experiment to me to see how much of the plot can we orient around stunt craft and stunt choreography. Yeah. And it follows an extremely simple premise where an assassin whose wife has passed away and left him a small puppy and basically kind of upped him like have your own adventure, live your own life. Has his car stolen and the puppy is killed and he goes on a mission of vengeance to kill the punk ass who did it. And that's the movie. Yeah. Because the punk who did it is the son of a Russian mobster, the process of trying to get to him takes John into this world of hitmen, where we learn that he himself is not just a retired hitman, but like the retired hitman. Mm -hmm. They call him the Baba Yaga, which means the boogeyman. He's the person you send to kill the fucking boogeyman. And he lays waste to like hundreds of dudes in an attempt to kill poor Alfie Allen, who, you know... (laughs) Thought he was just mugging some mook. Yeah. And then in the second movie, vengeance has been enacted. John goes back to his normal life. And then he gets basically pulled back into the world of assassins, where yeah. the message is basically like, because you went and took your vengeance on this guy, we all know that you're awake. We all know that you're back. And so he gets pulled back into the shenanigans because he has like a blood oath with this guy who was originally how he got out the first time. Mm-hmm. He goes on a trip to Italy. We meet Franco Nero. We meet common and it really ups the ante in chapter two unlike the violence the color the creativity and the scope of this like world of assassins like this fantasy world where these movies take place where it's not just like some mobsters it's it's very much akin to i just watched this last night john woo's filmography particularly stuff like hard-boiled and the killer Mm -hmm. where it's like the triad warfare in those movies is like expansive, sprawling thousands of guys all fucking fighting with guns, and that's how John Wick is. Yeah, there's an entire mythology. And one of the big parts of that is that at these continentals, which are kind of like safe havens for these assassins, the biggest rule is that you can't do any business there, meaning that you can't kill anybody there, which is exactly how two ends, John kills a guy and thus is excommunicated from the world of assassins, and three is basically about the entire wave crescendoing on top of him. Mm -hmm. 
It's so awesome. The High Table, who are basically like the overlords of all these assassins, put out the hit on John. So everybody and everybody comes after him. And he rides a horse wielding a samurai sword. Halle Berry has a million attack dogs going after <laughs> everyone. So the first one, very tight, very on the wire. And I think two is as well. Two is similarly tight while just kind of making everything more creative. Yeah. Three feels like the first one where they were like, all right, now this is what a John Wick movie is. And it's mm -hmm. just wall to wall, as big as it gets. For me, it lost a little bit of the appeal of those first two because it's still as linear, but it clearly doesn't care as much about being concise. Mm -hmm. It's very willing to just have a set piece roll on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. That movie ends with uh and, and with a character and an actor that we should talk about briefly before getting into four mm -hmm. with a set piece where john has to defend the new york city continental which he does with a character called sharon who is the mm -hmm. concierge of the new york continental he works under winston played by ian mcshane and uh sharon is played by lance reddick mm -hmm. he's been in all of the john wick films one two three and four Three is the first time where we get to see him in action where he and Keanu are like going back to back with these armor piercing guns, just shooting dudes who are trying to attack their hotel. Yeah. Unfortunately, sadly, Lance Reddick passed away this year before John Wick 4 came out. Yeah, literally days. What a great presence he had in all of these films. Yeah. He just gets to be like magisterial and like secretly kind of a tough ass. Mm -hmm. Very commanding presence and he will very dearly be missed. The third Wick movie ends with that continental set piece, which is like kind of the biggest and baddest thing that the franchise had ever done, which I think is really significant because four opens with an Osaka continental set piece that's extremely similar. They're being assaulted by the forces of the high table and the Marquis de Gramont, who we'll talk about. I mean, it makes everything in the first three movies look like child's play off the bat. It's insane. <laughs> So just to briefly get us into the plot of John Wick Chapter 4, he's been excommunicated from the world of assassins. They have sent all of their guys to come and get him, and they failed. They mm -hmm. failed in part because they failed to account for the fact that John has allies in Winston at the New York Continental, in Lawrence Fishburne's character, who's like the Bowery King of all the hobos of New York. And they didn't reckon with this idea that with that small network of people, he would be able to withstand their attack. And so we begin chapter four with John in the offensive. He is working with the Bowery King. You saw this. How did you see this? What format? Big old IMAX. So I saw this in Dolby. And the movie opens and Lawrence Fishburne's going down into the sewers where he's keeping John. Mm -hmm. And he's punching this thing. Like he's punching this like padded thing that's got like blood all over it from his knuckles. And every hit sounds like an earthquake yeah. in that auditorium. Yeah. Guy is quoting Dante's Inferno. So that's how we're it's starting. So good. It's so good. <laughs> and from there, it's John is on a mission of revenge once again, just like he starts out in mm -hmm. the first film, except now he's trying to get revenge against the gods, basically, yep. instead of just one little guy. And he's riding out into the fucking desert. Well, let's not forget how we get <laughs> to the desert. That opening scene where Lawrence Fishburne is quoting Dante's Inferno and setting up John Wick as the ultimate badass, ready to go take vengeance against God ends with a Lawrence of Arabia match cut. <laughs> yeah. Right into the fucking sun rising over the desert. And what do we see? Bunch of guys trying to run away on camels while John's shooting at him on horseback. That scene is kind of interesting because when I was watching it, I'm like, what the fuck is this? What is he doing out here? Who is he going after? Who are these people? He gets up to the guy who is a replacement for a character that we meet in three, who's played by an actor who you might remember from Lahine. He's kind of like uh, associated with the high table. He's just like a higher up in this world. Yeah. But as you can see, the important thing to note is that he represents a position. The actor, the man is different. So if you kill somebody in a position of power in this world, what happens? They are instantly replaced. High table is a hydra. It's a really important setup of this film. You can swing your sword however long you want, but it's just going to grow more heads. Mm -hmm. Every member of the high table is easily replaceable and they will not stop coming until you're broken down because it's like worldwide and that's the next thing that i think that this movie starts to get that the other movies have like in 
two, we get to go to Europe. We mm-hmm. see Italy. We see Rome. In three, we get to go to the Middle East. This one is like wall-to-wall international. And as I've already said, we start in Osaka, Japan yep. at the Continental there, where we meet a couple characters after, actually, because the first guy that we meet is the Marquis, yeah. played by Bill Skarsgård, who has basically been appointed by the high table to be the bounty hunter for John Wick, to use all the resources at his disposal to go after him. And the first thing that he does is he levels the New York City Continental. Yeah, he levels the New York City Continental, and he kills Charon, which... (sighs) The real-life context of Reddick's death just makes that scene... So much sadder. And once again, we kind of see how like the arrogance of these people is like turning against Winston, not really realizing what a powerful ally you're giving your enemy. Yeah. You constantly see the arrogance of the Marquis, played by Bill Skarsgård, in a series of ridiculous suits with, like, <laughs> chain watches and stuff. I love his commitment to the French lisp. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is inherently ridiculous and over the top. It's very fantasy, I think. Yeah, and French people don't deserve respect, so. <laughs> <laughs> we already talked about pacifiction. These are the two best movies of the year. They're both about how French people suck. Mm-hmm. But in terms of those ally characters, we quickly meet a couple new characters played by Hiroyuki Sanada and then Rina Sawayama, who are the manager and the concierge of the Osaka Continental, where John is hiding out and quickly attracts the attention of the Marquis, as well as a new character who is called a tracker, Mr. Nobody, mm-hmm. who is just kind of a third-party interloper who is specifically waiting for the price on John Wick's head to get high enough to kill him himself and bring him in. And then there's a third adversary that we also get to meet called Kane, played by Donnie Yen, who has now been typecast as blind man who does sick martial arts. I've heard he really likes playing that, so good for him. He's incredible. I think he is my personal MVP of the entire film. He's probably the best addition to the John Wick verse. Mm -hmm. The important thing to note here is that he is a retired assassin who gets called in by the Marquis to kill Wick. And when he refuses, the Marquis threatens to kill Kane's daughter, who is a street violin player. So he gets dragged back in against his will to serve the high table, which again, that whole arrogance is really going to come back to bite. Similarly, Mr. Nobody, after the Osaka Continental set piece, is recruited by the Marquis in a particularly memorable scene to also go after Wick. And it's kind of interesting, I think, as the movie progresses, there's just another layer of arrogance. And I'm reminded of Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men, where it's like, you gotta pick the one right tool. Who's going after Wick? Is it the Marquis? Is it Kane? Is it Mr. Nobody? Who is it? Mm -hmm. Because something that these movies are kind of interesting is it's like, we're going to stack up as many enemies against John as possible. And that's the spectacle of it. But the more they do that, the less focused the attacks become and the more he kind of gets to play one adversary against the other against the other. And that is something that is so like consistent and rich throughout this movie. And I think it makes all of the action more interesting. Yeah, it's that constant mounting sense of desperation. On both sides. Yeah. Because John's obviously being like attacked, attacked, attacked. So his exhaustion builds up. Yeah. But the longer that he survives, the more desperate the Marquis and everybody get too. Right. Because it's really like a crazy sprint. Because bear in mind, the events of the first three films all take place in about the span of a month. So when you get to this point. It doesn't even point, feel that long. Yeah. Yeah. The exhaustion <laughs> has got to be setting it. And you watch John get exhausted over the course of the film. Just to unpack this Osaka set piece, it begins with a scene that I think really sticks in my mind because of its scale. Because what happens is all the Marquis men kind of show up, mm-hmm. and all of the Osaka employees are there, you know, loaded up with their katanas and shurikens and everything. And they have like a 20 on 20, 30 on 30 battle in the main foyer of this area. And one of the reasons that that sticks out is because that's kind of classic action cinema to me like watching the choreography of so many people but the wick movies tend to be one guy fighting however many people but it's like one guy versus one guy at a time it's really really locked into two guys in combat with each other yeah so just 
to open this on such a broad set of fights is so cool. Yeah, it really lets you soak up the scale of the film. And get to meet these new characters right away and mm-hmm. kind of see whose side they're on, right, in the heat of battle. Yeah, all of whom get very memorable moments. I think the part of the Osaka fight that sticks out the most in my mind is a scene where Akira, the concierge, kills this big old brawny murderer from the high table by stabbing him in the back. And as he climbs up the set of stairs, <laughs> yeah. she stabs him over and over again, like a block of ice. She's until like he finally up, dies. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, for me, it's that intro for Kane. So first of all, you've got, oh, yeah. that's the Donnie Yen character. First of all, he's like in the kitchen, eating some noodles, not participating in the fight. <laughs> Just like over in the corner, like, standing in the dark. And then eventually he gets kind of like, you know, hey, blind man, come over here, come do your job, mm-hmm. get into the fight, which he does by taking out a bunch of dollar store oh sensor God. doorbells. So awesome. <laughs> sticks them all over the kitchen so that whenever somebody enters the kitchen, he knows where they are and shoots them, hits them, tackles them. So great. Anytime that Donnie Yen's character will like take his pistol and just sort of like blindly fire eight shots in a direction is always great. <laughs> His little confrontation with Wick is like, are you dead, John? (laughs) It's kind of like laying on the floor. He can't see me, okay? And that's at the climax of this big, huge fight that John has in an art gallery where goons just keep coming after him. He has to find like new ways to kill them, including a very memorable pair of nunchucks. (laughs) Him walking around with the nunchucks like a necklace is just a great (laughs) image. I really love when movies allow for different types of martial arts and things besides just gunplay and mm-hmm. that's something that this osaka set piece because it's like traditional and japanese we've got people with like bows and arrows we got yeah. people with knives and there are two sumo wrestler guards who end up just like unloading and like tossing people around <laughs> and so there's a lot of variety yeah. in this opening set piece and it keeps it very fresh i think the movie itself as we kind of pivot from osaka it's almost split into three settings mm-hmm. and three compound set pieces. The first one is Japan, Osaka. Second one is Berlin, Germany. And then the third uh, we'll get to, but it's in Paris. Yeah, Like I said, it's all kind of international. So from Osaka, once John kind of escapes the clutches of everybody, once again, we got the Marquis recruits Mr. Nobody by fucking... That's one of my favorite exchanges in the movie because Skarsgård's kind of... Just like we were saying with, uh, what were we saying that about? We were talking about a movie earlier, and I compared it to Kate Blanchett, Dungeons and Dragons. It's similar to Hugh Jack or Hugh Jackman, Jesus Christ, that's Wolverine. <laughs> it's similar to Hugh Grant in Dungeons and Dragons, how Skarsgård is kind of off to the corner, but it's even more his character, because he's like, I will hire a guy to do it, over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. He is an evil, sick bastard, but he is also spectacularly lazy. His interactions with that Mr. Nobody character, to me, are some of the best that he gets in the movie because he lets his sadist out a lot. And he gets real menacing and up in his face and everything. Yeah. There's a particular scene involving a knife and a hand, which I was like recoiling in my seat. The way that it's drawn out, the acting there, I think it's Shamir Anderson. Yes. Because he's got the knife in his hand that he's having to like pull it out and you just see his eyes are so big like two baseballs <laughs> and this leads john briefly back to new york where he meets up with fishburn meets up with mcshane mm-hmm. and develops a plan to go visit his family in berlin in order to quote unquote get a new ticket what that means is there's a certain belleville john woo loyalty among assassins, particularly among like collectives, families, and Wick belongs to this Eastern Bloc Russian mob sect that's held together, seems to me, by like Orthodox Christianity yeah. and their bloodline. Mm-hmm. Like they seem very close, you know, in a way that maybe some other mafia mob families would be a little bit more detached. Like this is a family. I think the the fact that they're Belarusian and not Russian seems significant to me because it's kind of one of those eastern bloc solidarity countries that would have their own Mm -hmm. like resistance to powers that be 
Yeah. And that's something that I think they kind of play with. That's in the nature of that family's character is to kind of be oh, rebellious. Yeah. You know, striking out against the people who would try to oppress them. We get, uh, who's that? It's Angelica Houston in three, right? That plays, I, I don't even know who his relative is meant to be, but it's a member of his family that's in New York City. Yeah, I believe that's right. And she gets punished at the end. That's, and that's the thing is that he kind of calls on his family oath and says, hey, help me, protect me, do this, you know, get me out of New York City. Yeah. And that process, they're like, all right, we'll help you. But when we do that, your ticket is torn. Like, you can't come back to us for help after we help you. That's, that's the end of it. Yeah. And so he goes back to Berlin to get reinstated in his family because Winston has come up with a plan. The plan is you can't just kill the Marquis because if you kill the Marquis, they just get a new Marquis. He's lazy. He's not even fighting for himself. Like, so they just hire a new guy. What you can do is using the kind of old laws of the high table, challenge him to a duel, kill him in a duel, win your freedom, end the onslaught, which John is like, but I, I don't sit at the high table. I can't issue a duel. He wouldn't take me seriously. He'd just shoot me. But because his family sits at the high table, if he's reinstated, they can issue the challenge for him. Mm-hmm. He goes, he recommends this course of action, and they say, no, fuck you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and they try to kill him. Yeah. And so finally, they're like, all right, our uncle was killed by this German mobster. So if you go and kill him, we'll reinstate you and we'll issue the proclamation for you for the duel. And notably, the German gangster that killed their uncle did so by command of the Marquis Mm -hmm. because of their relationship with John. So once again, it's a thing where overreaching creates a bitter constituency. Who are like ready to lash out against you when they have an instrument like John Wick to do it through. Mm-hmm. So John goes to this nightclub that's like multiple stories and it looks like every wall is a waterfall. Like, yeah. I don't know, that's a real cool place. I would go club there. But most importantly, he meets the mobster who's played by DTV action superstar Scott Atkins in a fat suit yeah. uh, and gold <laughs> fangs. And you know what? It's better fat representation than anything in the whale. So there's that. <laughs> they actually play a hand of poker because this is where that Shigura thing I was saying about pick the one right tool. Because mm-hmm. Kane, Mr. Nobody, and then this gangster called Killa are all here. And they all want to be the one to kill John Wick, but they all want to be the one. So they don't want anybody else to get it either. Mm-hmm. So they are kind of a free for all where everybody's representing themselves, and they play a hand of five-card draw. <laughs> it's like super Leone shit. Uh, yeah. Stahelski's a big Sergio Leone fan. And it is not It is not the most Leone thing that happens in this film. We'll get there, promise. We've talked about it a little, but we haven't gotten there yet. I Adkins just fucking rules here. <laughs> He's so good. He's having so much fun. He's handing it up, and I love every second of it. I really think it's important influx of new actors in this movie, particularly John's adversaries, because I think that's kind of a weak spot for me in the original films. Like the first one, he doesn't really have much of an adversary. He's more like going into the mob, going after them. Second one, we've got like this arrogant Italian guy who's great, but he's not really part of the combat. You've got like Ruby Rose is in there. Mm-hmm. Three's got probably one of the strongest because it's Mark Dacascos, who's playing Zero, who's like a sushi chef assassin. He's great. Mm-hmm. But this one just ups that ante with like numerous adversaries and allies who are all colorful, well cast. Adkins, other than Donnie Yen, might be one of the best ones. It's like a throwback to Sammo Hung, like his entire outfit and just like being mm-hmm. kind of the chubby but really brawny fighter almost like wilson fisk kingpin and daredevil a little for the Mm. marvel fans and this is where the next action set piece of the film begins john takes a card and slashes killa's (laughs) neck open doesn't kill him but it looks painful and then it descends into a chase throughout the nightclub where no one seems to mind what's going on they're all just having fun this is probably my favorite lighting of the entire movie. Every hit, every throw, every fall looks so cool. It's incredible looking. Particularly there's that. It's kind of the last fall that Killa takes. It just feels like it's a hundred tons falling onto concrete. My God, the snapping. I can hear it. <laughs> you know what's interesting is that you've got enemy classes in this movie. The Marquis men are all in these gray suits that are kind of bulletproof in the way that John's suit is bulletproof. Mm -hmm. They take a lot to kill. 
there are these armored guys from the high table who are attacking, you know, Sokka that have the bows and arrows and the masks and everything. Yeah. And you kind of got to take off their mask if you want to shoot them and kill them versus right. in this place, they're just regular guys. You can really tell so much about the characters just for their movements and what they use to kill and how they go down. It's really spectacular storytelling through action. That allows for certain comedic elements. Mr. Nobody fights with a dog and just like numerous times throughout the movie just has them like go after somebody's groin or like the yeah. dog's like yanking on some dead guy. <laughs> I mean, there's a direct line from like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin to these yeah. movies. And I think when you're talking about the variety of enemies and the comedy and everything like that just all gets taken to the Nirvana level once we go from Berlin to Paris. Mm -hmm. Winston goes and issues a challenge. He does it while standing in front of that painting from the Coldplay album. <laughs> John and the Duke meet and set their terms. I don't know the exact location, but it's in front of the Eiffel Tower. And it just looks like really, really cool. It's not like dusk. It's like yeah. twilight, golden hour, purple, pink, orange. Mm -hmm. So they agree to duel at sunrise, dueling pistols. I actually love the little card game thing that they play. That was great. It's location, weapon choice, to the death. And then mm -hmm. they flip over cards that have different numeric values, and whichever one has the higher one wins. It's just one of the many things in these movies. There's a lore of assassins but instead of ever telling you about it you'll just see a card game like this and be like oh okay i guess that's how they do duels here the world building in these movies are so great because they don't take the time to over explain everything they just present it to you you accept it most of the time the guy's being attacked by somebody so there's not enough time to explain it right you can't get bogged down in the details when you're getting your eyes stabbed out <laughs> they end up setting a Dueling with pistols at dawn at a church. It's the Sacred Core or something, or Sacred Core, Sacred Heart Church, basically. We get to this point where it's the night of, and the terms have been set. If John kills the Marquis, he will be free, cleared of his obligations to the high table, and the cycle of violence will end. And Winston is also reinstated, and the New York Continental is rebuilt. With the high table's money. I love that reaction that john has to winston when he finds out those terms he's like, what? <laughs> he, i like winston because he's uh you know he operates for himself he does his best to survive mm -hmm. he clearly cares about john he clearly cares about sharon a lot he would do almost anything to stay loyal to them except he'll also shoot you off a roof right he cares but also he's gonna look out and take care of himself there's only so much looking out for others you can do in this life yeah you gotta have some boundaries. <laughs> this ends up leading to Wick being reunited again with the Bowery King, who has traveled from New York to France, because he's going international. Yeah. And they meet down in the underground. They're like in a French resistance area of the subway, like tunnels that would have been used during World War II. Gives him a suit, he gives him a pistol, and they go on a little boat ride for what will prove to be the final sequence of set pieces mm -hmm. that ends the film. And there's a great moment there on the boat ride when they're talking about Charon and also what they would want on their tombstones. And John says all he wants on his tombstone is loving husband. And for me at this point, it's when the entire series really clicks. You know, you might think, oh, these are just action movies. And it's like, no, it's about this guy who lost his wife and can't figure out how to deal with it. So he's just been lashing out against the entire world, and the entire world has been responding back and fighting him. So he gets caught in this cycle of violence and death with almost no way out. And it almost becomes a Greek tragedy. It's about an inability to accept death, and an inability to accept that sometimes the people responsible may get punished, but that doesn't end the suffering. Yeah. Because life has to go on. Mm -hmm. You see that with the Osaka Continental set piece when he's talking to Akira and she's like, you shouldn't be here, man. You're putting me and my dad and our lives and everybody here at risk. For what? Like, she's dead, bro. And she's right. Her dad gets killed because of it. They issue the ultimatum to John over and over and over. It's like, where do you think this ends? It's either you die or you kill everyone. Mm -hmm. And even you can't kill everyone. It brings in the inevitability. It just sort of puts all of what he's been doing into that context where it's like movie one, you could have put a bullet in your head. It would have been the same. A lot, lot fewer people would be dead, actually. So what is the reason? Why do you fight? Why do you keep pushing? 
what's the purpose? Is it to change the status quo? Is it to protect somebody that you love? Is it to right a wrong? What's the reason for the journey? And that, like, that is mythology, right? Especially when we talk yeah. about like Greek tragedy and you know hubris and pride and everything like that. Is it you know is this just about reckoning with fate? Because mm-hmm. you can't change your fate, but you can you know go out on your own terms, stuff like that. Yeah, Greek mythology thing becomes even more obvious when they're talking about Tyrone on that boat ride going through the underworld almost talking about dante's inferno at the beginning i think you can understand a lot of these movies as first a descent into hell like the inferno and then an even more arduous path up through purgatory Mm -hmm. and i think that this final set piece you can really look at it the progression from beginning to end as like the ascent into heaven yeah which this set piece oh my god I haven't felt this way in an action movie since, like, Fury Road. It's, like, extensive. So basically, John's in France. The boat takes him as close as the church as he can get. He has to go the rest of the way up on top. On foot, on horseback, on a car, it doesn't matter. Crawling on his hands and knees Mm -hmm. to get to that church before sunrise, or else he forfeits and is executed. Yeah. And a radio broadcast goes out as the price on John Wick's head continues to go up and up and up. All of the assassins of Paris, France, send upon him on his journey from point A to point B. This third act set piece is like John Wick Chapter 2. <laughs> the first Osaka set piece is the end of John Wick Chapter 3. Mm-hmm. The middle Berlin piece is just like its own beautiful thing. And then this one is like an entire film in the last 70, 80 minutes of this movie. Yeah, it is absolutely insane. So, you know, you start off with that radio jock. We get to meet a lot of the assassins. We kind of like flash and see them all preparing. Mm-hmm. There's a particular type of ammunition that we see getting prepared here that's just like, ooh, what's the, ooh, <laughs> fire. The radio jock thing is a big inspiration from The Warriors, a film that mm-hmm. I personally haven't seen but really need to. But you watch this escalating all-out war as John moves from location to location. Starts off in one area, and then as he moves along, the violence just escalates and you think it's going to peak when it gets to the Arctic Triumph and he's riding in cars, getting hit by cars, shooting people left and right. There's this one moment where he's driving around this group of assassins and the camera is like rotating as he spirals. And like, I felt like I could punch God in that moment. <laughs> it's awe-inspiring. I'll say this. A lot of people have been talking about like the best action movie since Fury Road, the best action movie since whatever. I'm still team mission impossible fallout and this set piece is kind of an interesting comparison because let's just rewind that thought mission impossible fallout is a better movie because of the john wick films that bathroom fight and the subsequent stuff where they're trying to fight with ethan Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen without john wick no way Mm -hmm. wouldn't be anything like that without john wick absolutely similarly i don't think this arc de triumph scene would be here without the similar roundabout chase sequence that they do in fallout which Mm -hmm. is a little bit more daylit it's from above so you get to see like a greater level of the choreography yeah what this one gets you though is like the carnality where a guy will get hit by a cargo flying and john shoots him four times when he's in the air complete bone crunching intensity and it you think at least when i was watching it i was kind of like okay they're gonna go around it a couple times and he's gonna shoot it no (laughs) it's a five-course meal. It's a whole feast. They just keep going round and around and around, and the bodies are piling up. He's on foot. He's in the car. (laughs) The doors are flying off of the car. The one that follows that, where they end up in that maison, they're in like a house that's under construction. You've got like little tarps and everything. To me, (laughs) this is where the film absolutely peaks like it's just a great set piece of him fighting different groups of people mr nobody shows up with his dog he even gets a little bit where he's calling because the marquee is now getting a little desperate and they're having a negotiation he's like the price is now 40 million hangs up (laughs) that's like one of my favorite little exchanges is just like the two of them haggling over the price and i love when the marquee lands his cell phone and then for the next call <laughs> he, phone. and it's like one of those old landlines you know with like the rotary <laughs> fucking got like a little handle a little knob <laughs> on the end of it it's so good but what happens in the next part of this it's based on a video game a lot of these stunt choreographed sequences play a lot like video games certain elements of the lore like when yeah. he's getting a new suit or picking out his guns yeah. they kind of feel like 
getting your items in the shop. Yeah, I mean, you could argue these are video game movies that easily the best ever made. And then this set piece is where you really see that, because it's based on a game called Hong Kong Massacre, is where the inspiration came from for Stahelski. Yeah. It's similar also to a game called Hotline Miami, which is quite a bit more popular. A lot of people have compared it to that. When I watched it, I was thinking about Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void. <laughs> you go top down over this, you know, the rooms of this house, and you're gliding from room to room as John is fighting with different people. But those incendiary rounds come back into it. So instead of just, you know, he's shooting a guy, guy goes down, he's fucking shooting them and they go up in flames. There's uh, uh, this one moment when one of the people who has been set on fire is running around, panicking, screaming. He runs into the same room as John and John shoots him again. (laughs) One of the things that I will watch these movies and think, especially in three, this happens a lot where John will like lose a gun or run out of ammunition. Mm -hmm. These they're very, I wouldn't say that they're like super realistic. They're very fantasy, but he reloads a lot. Like yeah. Where it's like, hey, we gotta fucking reload. I'm out of bullets. I'm gonna have to tackle this guy mm-hmm. and take his gun. And I always love that when he picks up somebody else's gun and starts going with it, because that's very video gamey. Where it's like, oh, I'm trading my weapon for another weapon. So when he picks up the fucking dragon fire rifle, it's just like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is this is what we've all been waiting for. The choreography and the camera work in that scene is absolutely insane. Yeah, I just felt like I was levitating at that point. And then mm-hmm. you think like, okay, this is surely going to be the end of the mayhem. This is the peak of it. How can you get any more insane than this? And then we get to the Sisyphean staircase. I know that Sergei Eisenstein is somewhere <laughs> seething in jealousy at this scene. John gets to the church, and it's the final onslaught. It's just a few steps up a hill, and that's the church, sunrise, the duel to set him free. And here come wave after wave after wave <laughs> of more hitmen. He's taken him out. He's taken a beating. And just as he gets to the top, psh, rolls, 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 rolls. That's kind of a great callback to two. There's a point when he's fighting with Common. They knock each other down the staircase and go. Yeah. You think they're going to maybe go down one segment of it. It's like, no, they go down the entire fucking staircase. <laughs> Which in this case is like, I don't know, 10, 12 flights of stairs. Uh, at least. <laughs> All respect to Keanu Reeves, I think this character and performance have always been built around stunt choreography, which he does in a lot of movie stars couldn't do the types of things that he can do. And yeah. they have just become more and more and more demanding as they've gone on. And this is like a masterpiece of Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, Jackie Chan shit. I mean, it's comedic. Like, you start laughing at it just because of how incredible it is. Tom Cruise is watching this taking notes. It's like, this is inspiring. You know, if those two ever collaborate on a film together, I will ascend to heaven. One of them will die. (laughs) When John crashes at the bottom of the staircase, he's greeted by Kane. And Kane has finally had enough of the marquee. They've agreed the duel, and the Marquis immediately is like, Kane's dueling for me. He's that guy. <laughs> He's getting shot, not my ass. Yep. He's just been used this entire time. And I think Kane represents this idea of complacency with this world. Yeah. Just saying, I have served. I will be of service. And it's like, the longer you say that, the more they're going to make you do it. <laughs> they're never going to let you out. You're never going to be free. Doesn't matter how many friends you make, you have to kill them all. Mm-hmm. They're just going to keep demanding more and more and more of you. So then the two of them get to fight up the staircase together. We get a little bit of a Mr. Nobody moment with a dog. The dog shot at the end of that fight made the entire auditorium erupt. Maybe the best dog movie since Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we've also discussed this year. Honestly, yeah, that moment made my audience roar. So once we finally get to the top of the staircase, we haven't even mentioned Clancy Brown, who's just a minor character that works with the Marquis that just like says shit to him all the time yeah <laughs> i love clancy brown he's great he's kind of dressed like the exorcist here talking to the marquee the way that brian cox talks about jeremy strong <laughs> big booming voice it's fabulous and this is where we get to the leone stuff now we're gonna do 40 paces in a duel with these like flintlock fucking classic pistols that load a single round at a time so sunrise has just arrived and it's the final showdown between wick and kane and 
if they don't die in one round, then, you know, you have to take 10 paces closer. So first it's 30 and then it's 20 and then it's 10. And John's bleeding pretty heavily. He's down on the ground. The Marquis is frilled, steps in for Kane because he wants to deliver the killing blow. And Winston is like, you arrogant asshole. John didn't even fire yet. Great Barry Lyndon shit. I love it. <laughs> it's that great little image of the blood spilling out of the oh, it's rock. so great. That whole scene is just like a butt monkey moment for the Marquis because there's also that moment where he's talking to Kane about his daughter and Kane's just like, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> so the Marquis has been defeated and John is finally, after four movies, freed from the high table. His obligations are complete. Winston will get his hotel back. Kane is also free. Mm-hmm. Off to be with his daughter. But four movies of constant fighting takes a lot out on a body. Yeah. There's such a moment of serenity that's at the end of this. It's such a manic movie. It's such a manic series of movies, like nonstop. Yeah. You know, the movies themselves have been coming out for 10 years, but they take place over a month. Yeah. So you see all that age on Keanu's face and on his body. You see how he's getting a little older and a little slower. And I think there's like a real physical sense of mortality throughout this entire movie. Mm-hmm. And that sense of clarity at the end is just really kind of beautiful. There's something I really enjoy about the Leitch film, the Leitch follow-up to John Wick, which is Atomic Blonde. Mm-hmm. And something that I really love about Atomic Blonde is in the choreography as the fights go on for a really long time it gets sloppier they get yeah. less controlled less disciplined they have to like work up all their strength just to throw one hit and that's something that this paris set piece like the longer that it goes on the more it becomes like that like each step in the chain gets a little heavier gets a little harder and i think that that's you know it's sisyphus it's dante's purgatory there is like a mythic weight to this quest and also just like Lots of that literature, kind of open-endedness. Like, what did it all mean? What was it all for? Yeah. And again, taking in that whole, like, being taken to heaven, ascending. I mean, even in the direction that the movie travels, you know, sun rises in the east and sets in the west. I think that there are a lot of parallels that you can draw. Like, the first movie's club is called The Red Circle, which is an homage to Le Circle Rouge. There's lots of John Woo, the killer, hard-boiled in these movies. There's lots of The Raid and The Raid 2 in these movies. We've even talked about Mission Impossible. So I think it just kind of collects up all these different genres of action movies going all the way back to like France and Italy in the 60s, and it puts them on the stage with Greek tragedy. And that's pretty cool. Like when you're making genre films, reaching back to the oldest genres of drama and literature that we have. Yeah, these films and these stories are just as important as any classical drama. It's the same sort of grandeur that you might get out of like King Who's films, you know, like classic Mm -hmm. show where it's like the gods and Buddha and the Taoists and the spirit and everything. These movies are not very religious. They're not very spiritual. And yet they manage to, the bloodshed is prayer, you know, violence is serenity. There's just like a sacrifice that the body makes in exchange for the spirit. Transubstantiation, maybe. Which is not something you would normally expect from an action. No, it's particularly, you know, not one that's this colorful, silly, comic booky, video gamey. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Curious if they will make five. Uh, they've got a couple characters that they've now sped up between like Mr. Nobody and Akira who could be like a new lead. We've all seen the Fast and the Furious movies. We know that Letty comes back. We know that Han's back in Fast <laughs> X. You know, I'm sure that they will. I mean, they're already making other spinoffs. You know, there's the ballerina, oh, uh, which is that. a spinoff of Chapter 2 coming out in 2024. Uh, Angelica Houston's back. Ana de Armas is actually playing the lead in okay. that. Do we know who's like attached to be directing it? I read in an interview, Stahelski's kind of like, yeah, Keanu and I are done. But he also talked about how their process is basically they go through the premieres. They usually end up in Japan. They share a glass of whiskey. And they talk <laughs> about ideas. So I could really see Stahelski and Reeves going on to be a pair like Macquarie and Cruzar and just make a bunch of different shit together. And the ballerina is being directed by Len Wiseman, who made the Underworld series and the Total Recall remake. Interesting. Not great, but you kind of got to wonder if 
stepping into this kind of established setup would help you know stunt departments visual effects that thing we should get leich back over here because this whole like bullet train deadpool thing is not working for me no it's not (laughs) but yeah i think spinoffs are a good possibility for this series just because of the world well, we've already seen it spun off into like Atomic Blonde with Leitch. We've seen like Nobody yeah. with Bob Odenkirk. There was mm-hmm. some movie with Mary Elizabeth Winstead that kind of had, I think it was called Kate, that had a little setup like this. Or um, mm-hmm. we had like Fury. And now I think there's a movie called Furies with Veronica and Go. And I think mm-hmm. those all have taken heavy inspiration. So, like, even outside oh, yeah, of the franchise brand name, mm-hmm. John Wick has made a pretty big impact on like how people approach action this has been a very influential series although in terms of like a number five i'm kind of hoping we leave it here it's a fantastic ending point because this feels like it's the perfect conclusion you would risk cheapening certain things about it to revisit it but you know it'd be interesting to see you know winston down the road certain characters that we've seen in here that reminds me they actually are making some kind of prequel a free parter episode thing okay. about Winston when he started at the Continental New York in the 70s. I got you. Cool. That sounds pretty interesting. There's just yeah. a lot of, like, we talk about, like, the world, and because it is so suggestive, there's just lots of pockets where you could talk about, like, you know, the old days of the high table. Like, you know, fucking, mm-hmm. like, old Frenchmen doing rapier duels. Yeah, you can take this anywhere. So those first two movies, it's this Leitch Stahelski, and then I think two is, like, the upgrade. And then three is kind of like blazing this new trail of like, this is what a John Wick movie. And then this is like the graduate thesis version of Mm -hmm. that. And it's super expansive. I just feel like they got sauce right here. They really got the characters, the tone, Mm -hmm. that structure of the three cities. It's just very clean, which allows you to get like three hours into the weeds of these killer action set pieces. Yeah, it's really incredible that I didn't feel the runtime on this thing at all like not even for a single moment i think i saw this on thursday and you saw it on the weekend and i was like yeah i didn't get up to go to the bathroom one time and you were like wow (laughs) (laughs) that's a big deal for me (laughs) i was just planted having the time in my life it really locks you in really cool to have creed 3 this is kind of what i was alluding to earlier having creed 3 and wick 4 so early in the year and they're both really strong and they're performing at the box office and they don't feel even though they've got three and four in the title and even though creed's like a spin-off series of the original series blah 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 they don't feel handcuffed to the old ideas yeah. of like here's a franchise here's like ghostbusters where fucking like here's the character from 1980 <laughs> they feel like new and stylistic Mm -hmm. and like they incorporate influences from all over the place and just invigorate these like action blockbusters which reminds me we've got a ghostbusters movie coming at the end of the year why (laughs) something needs to come out at christmas i guess i guess we've got like a year off of avatar and dune We'll see you guys in 2024. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This has been a lot of fun. Where does this stack with you, um, action movie-wise? Like, since... Well, I'll be honest, I did give this five stars. So this is, like, up on the Mount Rushmore of action cinema for me, at least of the 21st century. Yeah, it's it's the best of this early decade so far for me since 2020, pretty solidly. The movie that it took the place of No Time to Die has a lot of great action in it, but it's not as wall-to-wall. It's not yeah. as, like, much. You know, the yeah. quantity, the density. Avatar The Way of Water, I feel similarly. Great set pieces. Wonderful action. Kind of prefer that movie when it's just being, like, a nature documentary. Same. And so it doesn't click in my head in the same way as, like, Fallout or The Raid. This is my favorite since Fallout. I yeah. think I'm still giving the preference to that one. Mm-hmm. Just the variety. I'm really looking forward to Dead Reckoning. That's where I'm leading with this. Me I too. I can't wait. wait. Like, imagine if that's like as good as this is, or like close. You know, I'll explode right in the auditorium. <laughs> I, I would love it. I do give slight preference to this one just for the exploration of the human body, because for me, it's like a dance movie for sure. The biggest, bloodiest dance movie you can imagine. Fallout. If I wanted to make the kind of it's like a dance movie where they dance in helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> there's a you put this really well when we talked about this is like fallout has that aerial advantage 
They get yeah. way up in the air. They're in the airplanes. They're doing crazy stunts. This is the body. This is like bringing it down to earth and it's skin and muscle and bones and blood and sweat. Yeah. To that end, watch the raid. Watch the raid too. They hit really well. I watched Hard Boiled again last night. Mm -hmm. After watching this, you're just like, oh yeah, this is great. It's just fucking violent poetry. Watch Fury Road. Watch Fallout. Watch this series. Watch Tom Blonde. Watch all of these great action movies. Don't watch Sazam. Uh, <laughs> don't watch Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, which I saw today because I'm a <laughs> psycho who likes to torture myself. Yeah. <laughs> we might have to dismantle the fucking public domain if they can't come up with any ideas besides what if this wholesome cartoon character people. Yeah. You know what? I am now anti-public domain. Disney, get to work. <laughs> Uh, Cole, this has been great. We look forward to our next conversations. As I've already said, that next episode is going to be on 2013. And then soon in the near future, you and I are going to be talking about Daisies and some of the films of the Czechoslovak New Wave. Intent, wink, wink, coming soon. Going to be quite exciting. Yep, we look forward to talking to you all about some of that and maybe some new movies on the way soon. So thank you very much for listening. Cole, thank you again. As always. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.